the free will of man. Today, those of us who declare ourselves as being Christian, believers, get all kinds of doctrinal teachings preached to us. We get a word about how to be prosperous, how to get great power, how the church is failing, etc. Many of our doctrinal preachers have become motivational speakers, encouraging us to tell our neighbor this or that, when to say amen, or speak this way or that. The most taught doctrine is the belief in man's free will. Because this is common teaching, I did some research and this is what I discovered, oftentimes, when I discuss with believers the different aspects of scriptures, the conversation normally leads to the free will of man doctrine. I have found that many times people use this phrase to explain a doctrine of man's partnership with God, the belief that God will not force us to do anything against our will, because we are not robots. This conclusion is the mainstream understanding of how man relates to God. The contrast of creatures if we explore 2 Corinthians 5, we find Paul appealing to the nature of those who are in Christ. He indicates that it is better to be out of the body because to be so is to be in the presence of the Lord. Paul tells us that whatever state we are in, our objective is to be accepted by the Lord. As he continues, it is noted that all of us will stand before the Lord to receive those things done in the body either good or bad. However, his primary point is that those who are in Christ have died to the things of the world and have become new creatures. Please understand that he did not say a new man but a new creature. A creation that has a whole different category. A category that is of God, where all things have become new. Using this wisdom, a person who is a new creature only serves the will of God. You may ask, what is the will of God for us? In 2 Corinthians 5:18, it tells us that we have been given a ministry of reconciliation. This ministry is the same as Jesus's ministry, which was to reconcile the world unto himself. Precepts of reconciliation. Now, there are two precepts to this reconciliation. One is that we, believers, are constrained, held together, by the love of Christ and the other is that we are not to impute there, the unlearned or unbelievers, 1 Corinthians 14 23, transgressions unto them. In the second precept, we are told not to tabulate, reckon, compute, calculate, or to tabulate over anyone trespasses, Strong's Concordance, G 3049. My understanding of this passage is not to bring up their past transgressions. In John 3:18, we are told that those who believe are not condemned, but those that believe not, unbelievers, are already condemned. Now the question is, can an unbeliever get saved? If so, who is able to save them? First of all, let us look at John 3:18 and the word condemned. Strong's Concordance G29:19 explains the word condemned is to be separate, put asunder, to pick out select, or to choose. It goes on to indicate that this is an act of pronouncing judgment. The concordance indicates that this is a root word, and the meaning is final. Also, another word to focus on is an unbeliever. Strong's concordance states that an unbeliever, G571, is someone who is unfaithful, faithless, and not to be trusted, they are incredulous and without trust in God. On the other hand, an unlearned person, Strong's Concordance G62 means to be illiterate. The dictionary defines illiterate as having or demonstrating very little or no education, showing a lack of culture, especially in language and literature, and displaying a marked lack of knowledge in a particular field. If we look at Genesis 4:19, 23-24, Lamech, Cain's, who was condemned by God, descendant, declared what he had done was more terrible than his Cain's, he then pronounced that he accepted the sentence of Cain 
which was to be separated from God and given a covering mark. This made him feel better than all others. Therefore, a condemned person is an unbeliever of this mindset and must not be trusted. The reason this matters is that many have confused an unlearned person from an unbeliever. An unlearned can become a believer but an unbeliever cannot. This is because an unbeliever has a reprobate mind, given to him by God in Romans 1:28. Also, in 2 Thessalonians 2:11, God sends them a strong delusion to believe a lie. That lie was the mindset of Lamech. Now, the answer to the question is that an unbeliever cannot be converted, because they have been turned over to a strong delusion by God. The final answer to this question comes from John 12:38-41, where he quotes Isaiah 6:10 in New Testament understanding, that the saying of Esaias the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spake, Lord, who hath believed our report? And to whom hath the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe, because that Esaias said again. He hath blinded their eyes, and hardened their heart, that they should not see with their eyes, nor understand with their heart, and be converted, and I should heal them. These things said Esaias, when he saw his glory, and spake of him. This revelation bring up an ideal question. The question is, was the turning over to a reprobate mind in Romans 1 by God, the action taken in Genesis 6 when God removed his spirit from all but Noah? Now my point is this, if we, believers, are to be ambassadors for Christ, then the only will we have is His will, which is to reconcile those who are His, to their remembrance of who they are, and whom they are, Luke 15 17-20. The Judgment From 2 Corinthians 5:10, we also understand that there is a judgment that goes along with all of this. The judgment will be standing before the judgment seat of Christ in order to receive rewards. Rewards for what has been done in the body, both good and bad. If we look at Matthew 25:45-46, the king issues out judgment onto those on his right hand and those on his left hand. His final judgment is identified in verses 45-46. Therefore, the rewards mentioned in 2 Corinthians 5 are everlasting punishment to those on the left hand and everlasting life to those on the right. You do remember what Matthew 25:31-33 identifies, when the son of man shall come in his glory, and all the holy angels with him then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory, and before him shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them one from another, as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats, and he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. This runs parallel to what the king did. Anyhow, we must note that the king did not say those who did it sometimes. Jesus confirmed this in Matthew 13:47-50 when he told the disciples what the kingdom of heaven was like. He said, again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto, a net, that was cast into the sea and gathered of every kind, which when it was full, they drew to shore, and sat down, and gathered the good into vessels, but cast the bad away. So shall it be at the end of the world, the angels shall come forth, and sever the wicked from among the just, and shall cast them into the furnace of fire, there shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Therefore, in order to be who Jesus says we are, we must do only His will which is the will of righteousness. Paul tells us in Romans 8:19 that the earnest expectation of the creatures is that the sons of God manifest themselves. We know this action will liberate the creatures from their bondage of selfishness. We know that God has already put all things in subjection under His, man, feet, Hebrews 2:8. The question is when did that happen? Was it in the beginning, at the cross, 
or is it yet to come? Looking at verse 7, it mentions that God gave the works of His hand to the man. Therefore, everything mentioned is about in the beginning, when man Adam became a living soul. More on this later. Present Teachings Today's teachings insist that this concept of the free will of man began in the garden with Adam and the woman. It's been explained how God had commanded Adam not to eat of the tree of good and evil, in the midst of the garden, how they ate of it anyway after the serpent tricked the woman. How she looked into the tree and ate then gave it to Adam who was with her and he did eat. There is a belief that nothing happened until Adam ate because he was in charge. They go on to say God got angry because Adam and the woman had made a conscious decision to disobey him and eat from the tree. It is believed that this was the first example of a man having free will. Based on present teaching, Adam and the woman had a God-given right to agree or disagree with God as they saw fit. Now, the question is, when did God give them this free will? Was it when He blew His Spirit into the living soul, or right before Adam ate? It had to be sometime between the blowing of the Spirit and them eating the fruit. When do you think it happened? However, I cannot find any scriptural proof to back up this claim. Therefore, the question is, the free will of man, where did it come from, and who does it benefit? I found it interesting that after searching the scriptures, I googled it too, there are no scriptures indicating that God ever said or indicated to the man that he could rebel against him, God, and that he, God, was okay with that. In fact, God declared that they must surely die. Did he change his mind and went back on his word? Was he only talking about a spiritual death? In this case, the separation of Adam's spirit from his body was impossible because to remove his spirit would have left the body lifeless, because the blood was not the life force at the time. Wait a minute, there may be a place in the scriptures that indicated that the eating was going to take place. We find in Genesis 2:17 that God made a very interesting statement. He said, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. Now, in the day that thou eatest thereof is a powerful statement, being that in a day is a point in time. In this case, the start and or finishing of something. Also, when God speaks a thing, it must come true. Intriguing, is it not? Anyway, James 2:26 tells us, For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Nowhere in the scriptures has this ever happened to Adam. More on this later in the narrative. There are two scriptures that mention the phrase will of man, they are, but as many as received him, to them he gave the power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. John 1 12 13, Emphasis Mine, for the prophecy, came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. 2 Pet. 1 22, Emphasis Mine, neither one of these scriptures shines a good light on the will of man. Being that, in my view, there is no scriptural evidence as to a free will of man or that it has any divine power associated with it. I concluded that the only will we have is the will of the one we follow. Therefore, those who follow mammon, riches, serve his will, John 8:44. A clearer understanding of this comes from 2 Corinthians 4:4, where we are taught that the devil is the god of this world, unto those who minds he has blinded, those who do not believe, unbelievers. My understanding is that the only will a believer has is the will of God. 
Mark 3.35 states that for her shall do the will of God, the same as my brother, and my sister and mother. We find in Acts 13.36 that David served his generation by the will of God before he died. Finally, the narrative on the free will of man is one that is covered in evil and missing the mark. In Matthew 6.24, it talks about the two masters. One is God and the other being mammon. Our present-day teaching dictates that Satan is a master. However, the scriptures say that mammon is a master. Strong's Concordance G3226 identifies mammon as being treasure, riches, and wealth that is personified. The dictionary says that mammon is a personification of riches as an evil spirit or deity. Personification is the placing of attributes of, human nature or characteristics, on animals, inanimate objects, or abstract notions, especially as a rhetorical figure. Therefore, the will of man can only manifest when there is a focus on getting things and stuff. This action produces a love that is addictive to self-worth and not of God but of the world. In 1 John 2:16, it states that for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. You cannot serve two masters. However, I decided to go back and review what happened in the beginning with Adam and the woman to see what type of supposition I could come up with. The conclusion of this matter will continue later in the narrative. But until then, let us continue with is the doctrine you are being taught the true gospel of our Lord Jesus, the Christ our God, or not. Many in the pulpit, unknowingly or knowingly, have become self-serving businesspersons who went rather than was being sent. Many of them teach Old Testament theology, which highlights the disobedience, rejections, and the unbelief that the children of Israel had toward God. Then they attempt to apply that theology onto New Testament believers. These concepts and precepts are so far from being accurate. It leads us to a philosophy of expectation. This philosophy would have us believe that Jesus deals with us, believers, the same way He deals with sinners, unbelievers. Let us look at this, Paul said, let this mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. Can we conclude that if we, New Testament saints, have the mind of Christ, then we have pleased the Father and do not expect Him to do what He already has done? Let us take a look and see how we please God. In Hebrews 11:5, we find Enoch, who was the seventh from Adam, the seventh generation, 300 years after Adam left the garden, pleasing God because of his testimony. His testimony was that he believed and trusted God to take care of him. Proverbs 3:5 says, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy path. Therefore, to have the mind of Christ is to please God by knowing that He will take good care of us regardless of the situation or circumstances. Paul goes on to say Christ did not think it was robbery to be equal with God but was made in the likeness of men to be obedient to the death on the cross. We must understand that Christ never stopped being God but took on the appearance of a man in order not to shock the people with His presence. In Exodus 33 20-23, God tells Moses that no man can see His face and live. Placing Moses behind a rock, he showed him only his back parts. If Christ would have come in his perfect appearance, the people could not have withstood it. Exodus 20:20 indicates that the people were afraid of God even talking to them directly, for fear of death. The book of 1 John indicates that when Christ comes again, we will be just like him. That appearance, which is like his, happened to him before the foundation of the world. Christology versus Theology 
trying to teach New Testament Christology, Jesus, using Old Testament theology, God, is a very tricky thing to do because the precepts are the same in some aspects yet very different in others. That is because the old was based on works, rejections, and unbelief, while the new is based on grace, acceptance, and belief. To be clear, the old focused on disobedience while the new focus is on obedience. Many in the congregation are just followers never coming to the truth of the Scriptures. They say Amen, bear witness, wave their hands, and tell their neighbor whatever they are told by the person speaking, like robots, rarely knowing what the person is saying or what they mean. Another misleading doctrine is that Satan can overrule Jesus's commands. The truth is that he can only rule over those who do not believe, unbelievers, this is according to 2 Corinthians 4. Also, Satan, who is said to be the God of this world, can rule over them, so they cannot have the light of Christ shine on them and God would have to save them. A question arises to me, are those the ones God turned over to a reprobate mind, Romans 1:28? In 1 Thessalonians 2. 11. God is the one that gave them a strong delusion that they should believe a lie. The lie was that they knew better than God what they needed to feel good. Therefore, it is God, not Satan, that blinded their minds, interesting. The Rulership of Satan Question, when we talk about Satan doing this or that, are we talking about his seed, Cain, and his descendants, 1 John 3? You see, the descendants of Cain are vagabonds and fugitives, as their father was, Genesis 4:14. They are known as the children of disobedience or the sons and daughters of men, Strong's Concordance, H120. Also, we are no longer under the law of sin and death but are under the law of life in Christ Jesus. James 4-5-10 talks to us about dealing with the devil. He says, Do you think that the Scripture saith in vain, The Spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? but he giveth more grace. Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. We find here that we have the grace of God because of our humbleness, and because of that grace, we can resist the devil, and he has no choice but to flee. The process of being humble is found in Ephesians 1:13, which says, In whom ye also trusted, after that, ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. The outline here is to first hear, then trust, and believed. Then God seals you with the Holy Spirit. The hearing here is not from a person but from God who calls us. 1 Peter 2 9. Trusted, G 42 76, is a past tenth word, which means to hope before. Now that hope comes from His faith, Hebrews 11:1. To believe, G4102, is to relating to God, the conviction that God exists and is the creator and ruler of all things, the provider and bestower of eternal salvation through Christ. Relating to Christ, a strong and welcome conviction or belief that Jesus is the Messiah, through whom we obtain eternal salvation in the kingdom of God. And finally, to be sealed, G4972, is the most important of all these words for it means to set a seal upon, mark with a seal, to seal, for security from Satan. Since things sealed up are concealed, as the contents of a letter, to hide, keep in silence, keep secret, Colossians 3 3, this tells me that Satan has no authority over anything. To close this notion of Satan's control over us, the writer of 1 John states that if your heart, 
spirit, condemns you, God, Jesus, is greater than your heart, spirit, and knows all. The message here is that Satan brings sin, sin brings condemnation, and condemnation brings death, separation from God. This writer further informs us that no condemnation means our confidence toward God, Jesus, is intact and He will never leave us nor forsake us. Finally, Satan, Lucifer, being an angel is a heavenly being. I have found nowhere in the Bible where he is given residency or caretaker duties over the earth by God. The only one God gave caretaker duties over the earth was the living soul. Therefore, Satan has no authority or power over the earth and is an undocumented resident, an illegal alien, and a convict with a death sentence on his head. Jude 1 9 tells us this, yet Michael the archangel, when contending with the devil he disputed about the body of Moses, durst not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke thee. Our job is to only remind him what God has already done to him. Another aspect of this Satan going to get you doctrine is that the book of Romans tells us that there is no condemnation upon those who love the Lord and called for his purpose. Another strictly taught doctrine within primarily the charismatic movement is the healing ministries. The claim is that because of their close relationship with God, he works through them via the Holy Spirit to heal the sick, raise the dead, control the elements, etc. This attitude of miraculous healing and element manipulation comes from several conjectures and omissions between what Jesus and others said and what they did. Within this movement, there is a strong need to show evidence that you have the power, which is speaking in a heavenly language. However, what I have noticed is that the first time something happens, they are the first ones to run for cover. If they get sick or injured, they run to the doctor, they do this after telling their members not to trust the doctor but just trust Jesus to heal them. Many times, they cry out to the Lord to fix this or that right after they have proclaimed they have been given all powers. They claim that they were given this power to finish the works of Jesus. The proclamation they can do these things comes from scriptures like Matthew 4:23, where Jesus went about healing all manner of sickness and disease, or Luke 4:40, where Jesus healed all those brought to him, and also, Acts 5:16, where the multitude got healed when Peter passed by. The classic scripture used is John 14:12, where Jesus says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. This is the primary evidence used to declare that they have all the abilities of Jesus. However, the key phrase is the work that I do he do also. What then are the works of Jesus? We find that Jesus's mission was to save his people from their sins by proclaiming the kingdom of God was at hand, accessible to his chosen. The acts he did were the results of being in the kingdom of God. Jesus was showing his people what it meant to be in the kingdom of God. The objective was for them to accept him for who he was and not what he did. Jesus confirmed this in John 6 when talking to the disciples. This is the conversation, then said they unto him, what shall we do, that we might work the works of God? Jesus answered and said unto them, This is the work of God, that ye believe on him whom he hath sent. They said therefore unto him, What sign showest thou then, that we may see, and believe thee? What dost thou work? As he continued the conversation, we will understand the true works of God. Jesus then said to them, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven, not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. 
and this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me I should lose nothing but should raise it again at the last day. And this is the will of him that sent me, that every one which seeth the Son, and believeth on him, may have everlasting life, and I will raise him at the last day. This is a direct reference to John 17, where he states he had lost none given him. An important thing Jesus said to the seventy was this, notwithstanding in this rejoice not, that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice, because your names are written in heaven. Therefore, we are to rejoice about who and whose we are and not on what we can do. There are many other scriptures that dictate that if Jesus or one of the apostles did this or that, then they can do it too. In Romans 915 15-16, God declares, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. I think claiming to have God's power to do the things of God is a very dangerous thing to do. My perspective only. Review this leads us back to the question, is the doctrine we are being taught the true gospel of Christ? In the scriptures, we are told that in the last days there will be many out to deceive the elect. Their objective is to make merchandise of us. We are told they will come as ministers of righteousness and that they will take captive many with subtle speak, just as the serpent did to the woman. Well then, ask yourself that question, am I sure the doctrine being preached to me is the true gospel, or is it another gospel? Think about it, deception is a subtle thing that can have eternal consequences. Remember this, the Lord has chosen you and not you that chose Him. His love toward us is based on who you are in His sight. It is not that you know Him but rather that He knows you, Galatians 4 9. Finally, Paul says in 1 Timothy, study to show yourself approved, a workman able to rightly divide the Word of God.